All right, well, today we're gonna look at the third Psalm. Um, before we kind of dive in, uh, one of the, I was in a home group this week and uh, they talked about how last uh, Sunday when Pastor Scott preached on the 51st Psalm, um, how, how much richer it was because they understood more and more of exactly where uh, David was in this setting because of the stories of David and Bathsheba. They understood, th- uh, they understood that. But just this whole time of getting to know David better over these last three or four months um, allows the Psalms that he is attributed to have, have written to really kind of come alive. And I was thinking about that when it comes to the Psalm that we're going to be looking at today, the third Psalm. I, I want us to be aware of what's happening Uh, before I read that psalm. So, you know, um, we've gone through and and chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel is that story of David and Bathsheba and Nathan confronts David uh, and he lets him know that there are real uh, repercussions, of course, to our sin and to our brokenness. And over the next few chapters, around 13 to 17 and 18, we begin to see kind of the struggles that David goes through through. Um, Some of this is a little more sensitive in nature, so I'm not going to go into great detail, but uh, uh, let's just say that uh, one of David's sons takes advantage of his sister. Um, Another of his sons, Absalom, doesn't like that, of course, and and so he ends up killing uh, this particular son, uh, his brother. Um, Absalom then flees to go away from Jerusalem to run away because he knows his father is not pleased with him. So he's in exile for a few years. And then finally, David allows him to come back to Jerusalem, but it's pretty clear that that real forgiveness is not there. Uh, David uh, does not allow Absalom to see him for years. Uh, They live in the city of Jerusalem, and David will never actually see uh, his son Absalom. And so finally, Absalom is kind of fed up, and so he begins to uh, conjure up some folks who are are behind Absalom rather than King David, and then he decides he's going to do a coup, right? He's going to try to take over from David, and so David has to flee. So he runs out of Jerusalem, his beloved city, city, the city that he has made the capital, and this king that once had so much power is all of a sudden now, he's running away. Not only that, but if you remember the story of Mephibosheth, uh, who was the, uh, the injured son of Jonathan, who David had so uh, lovingly taken back into the city, um, um, Mephibosheth, David is told, in the midst of his exile, uh, Mephibosheth stayed back in Jerusalem uh, because he wanted to actually become the king. And so there's all this sense of betrayal. Um, David is alone, he's ostracized, and he's endangered by his own flesh and blood and Absalom. And it is in the midst of all of that, that David writes this song that we call Psalm 3. So let's hear what David has to say. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying to me, there is no help for you in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy hill. I lie down and sleep. I wake again, for the Lord sustains me. I am not afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Rise up, O Lord. Deliver me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. And sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we do pray for your peace. We pray, Lord, that you would speak through this psalm, that we would hear what you would have us to say today. And I pray that the words of my mouth, meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. Well, as you heard, the psalm begins with David crying out that that many are his foes and that these foes keep telling him that, that God will not help him. There is no help in God, these foes are telling him, these enemies of David. Why exactly is it that they're saying that? Well, uh, um, Tim Keller suggests that the reason that they're saying this is that they're really kind of reminding him of the fact uh, of all of his sin and brokenness from the past, of what happened with Bathsheba, what happened with Uriah. And they're saying, look, all these things have happened. And you think God has room for you after all those things that you have done? Even God has a limit to how much he can forgive. There is no place for you any longer, they seem to be saying to David. And if you go back and you read uh, uh, some of these chapters, uh, it's, 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 it's interesting to see uh, 2 Timothy, Timothy chapter 16. And in there, this is right when David is fleeing from Jerusalem. And so he's kind of running along and, and up on a ridge, there's someone named Shimei. And Shimei is up there and Shimei is throwing rocks at David as he's fleeing. And he's kicking up dust uh, Adam, and he's saying, you're a scoundrel, you're a murderer, right? It's this very kind of strange scene that as he's running, you know, you can just kind of picture it. It's almost this kind of Monty Python-esque kind of thing, right? Like, you know, scoundrel, murderer, and he just keeps throwing these things, right? Until finally one of David's men says, I can't take it anymore, King David, just tell me, and I will go up there and I will lop off his head. And David said, well, I mean, what he's saying is true. So leave him alone. And so he did. And Shimei didn't stop. Shimei just kept going. He just kept throwing things at him. He kept reminding him of his past again and again and again. And I think this is a remarkable image. Most of us probably have at least one person in our life who is more than happy to remind us of our mistakes from the past who's more than happy, don't look at that person if that's who it is, who is more than happy to remind you of your sin or your brokenness. But what I'm also convinced of is that there's a great likelihood that the, that the largest Shimei in your life is probably the one inside of you. Because almost all of us wrestle from time to time with a Shimei inside of us who's throwing rocks at us or kicking dust at us and reminding us of exactly what it is that we have done wrong in the past. Who's more than happy to tell us, surely God is not going to rescue you anymore. Surely God cannot continue to love you or forgive you after all that you have done. It's this fascinating scene, it seems to me, uh, of this reminder that we have of the struggles of our past, right? Which means, of course, that just like David, we have to always ask ourselves, are we going to listen to the Shimei that is in our rearview mirror? Are we going to listen to the Shimei inside of us or outside of us who tells us that God is no longer going to listen to you anymore because of what you have done? But David, of course, is not just having to be continually reminded of his past. David also has much to be fearful about when it comes to the future. 
In fact, in Psalm 3, he says uh, something about there being 10,000 foes against him. And, and as we will see, um, Absalom uh, in 2 Samuel, he, he comes after him with his army of thousands in order to try and kill him. And many of us, of course, when it comes to the future, we may not exactly have armies. Some of us perhaps have stared down the face of armies of thousands, but most of us have not. But as commentators point out, when it comes to the future and those things which cause us fear and anxiety, they don't always need to have knives or guns. The truth is anything that takes away our joy, our life, our energy, our hope, anything, whether it's a loss of a job or, or, or someone who threatens our joy or, or an employee who's gunning for our job or a divorce or a medical diagnosis, almost anything can destroy or give us great fears about the future. And the real damage oftentimes, of course, is not for the future. It is the way in which it shapes us in the present. Eddie Haleum was a, uh, a Jewish woman who lived in Holland, much like Anne Frank um, uh, in the time of Anne Frank in the 1930s and 40s. And uh, eventually she was taken to Auschwitz where she was killed. But again, like Anne Frank, she wrote a diary that just kind of talked about her thoughts and her thinking and her transformation during this time of living in fear. And she has a, a remarkably interesting thing to say about this fear of the future and the way that it can shape us. She says, she says this, we have to fight them daily like fleas, those many small worries about the morrow, for they sap our energies. We make mental provision for the days to come and everything turns out differently, quite differently. There's a few things about that quote that I really like. One of them is this kind of comparison between these fears about the future and, and, and anxiety about what might happen and fleas, right? I don't know if you've ever had fleas. Um, um, maybe, we, maybe we shouldn't admit this. We once had fleas when we lived in Pennsylvania. It is a nightmare. It is impossible, it seems, to get rid of those things, right? And just about the time you think you do, all of a sudden, there they are, hopping everywhere, right? And, and the thing about fleas, of course, is that they're almost impossible to get, and they just keep coming up. They just keep popping up. And I love that image for the, for the fears and anxieties about the future because the truth, of course, is it's not like you just get rid of them one day and then you never have to worry about them again. The truth is, for most of us, we wake up the next day and there's a whole, you know, a fresh slate of things that we can be worried about or that we can be anxious about or the old things just kind of come back up again, right? So I think it's just great kind of image of what fears and anxieties about the future, uh, uh, how they feel. I also, though, think it's helpful to know that some of those fears or anxieties, they actually do happen. I mean, Eddie, she actually did die in Auschwitz. David, he does survive Absalom, but he will also eventually die, of course. And so as Christians, right, our, our call is never to act like we're kind of Pollyanna. Oh no, the, you know, everything was always just gonna be great. There will never be any, any struggles or challenges. I, I don't think that that's the call but what I do want to remind you is what Eddie said, which is that the problem is that these fleas of fear of the future, they end up sapping our energy today. It's the way in which we begin to live those things out in the future and we allow them then to change our present and distort how we live today. One of the ways that we see that happening, of course, is that it is very difficult when you are worried about the future, it is very difficult to be fully present today. 
As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of uh, a, a few years back now, I had, a, I had a medical issue that was going on inside of me. I didn't know exactly what was happening and it was kind of weird and I was just, I was like getting nervous. And so I, of course, you know, did the thing that always makes us feel better, which is I looked up on Dr. Google and I just felt, you know, I mean, after that, I felt like, well, surely nothing's wrong. This is great, right? No, of course not, right? Before you know it, I'd already been dead five years, right? I mean, this was just incredibly, you know, frightening, right? So then I went and I actually saw a doctor and, and then I saw another doctor and they were like, well, you know, we don't really know what it is, but we're sure it's fine, which I always want to say, well, it's easy for you to say it's not your body, right? And so I had all this kind of stress and for like a year, you know, I was just feeling the stress of what was going on, what was going to happen. And, and honestly, I was, I, I was worried. I was worried about, you know, mostly about my kids. Like I'm not going to be able to see them as they get older. I'm not going to be able to walk down the aisle. I have four daughters. I have a lot of walking to do. And, 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 and I was worried about I'm not going to see any grandchildren. What if I get a grandson? That would be weird, right? I mean, what do you do with the boy? And so all of these things, right? And I had, I had all of this stress and this strain of wondering about what that was going to be like. And all of a sudden, I can remember it distinctly. It was one night when I was lying in bed and I was just kind of caught up in this. This was about a year into all of this. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me. I had spent so much time worrying about the fact that I was not going to be there for them in the future. That by and large, for that last year, I had not been with them at all in the present. Because I had been so worried about what I was going to miss that even when I was with them physically, I was mourning what might happen in the years ahead. And I was reminded of that again just within the last month. I was reading a book by Jacques Philippe who, who wrote this. He says this. He says, if Jesus asks us not to have any worries, that is mainly to safeguard the quality of our relations with other people. A heart preoccupied by concerns and worries isn't available to other people. Parents should remember this. Children can get along happily without constantly demanding their parents' attention, provided there are regular times when dad or mom have no concern except being with them. If we are riddled with anxieties instead of leaving them in God's hands, we can't offer our children that kind of time and they will never feel secure in our love no matter how many expensive gifts we lavish on them. That was a sobering quote. And it's this reminder, of course, it's not just if you have children, right? Even if you don't have children, when we are worried or anxious about the future, it keeps us from being fully present to our friends, to our, to our fellow staff, employees, wherever else it may be in life. We simply, when we are always worried about the future, it is almost impossible for us to actually be present and engaged in what is going on today. And so as we think about David, there he is. He has Shimei who keeps reminding him of the past and of what he has done wrong. He has real worries about the future, real concerns, of course, things for which he could be very fearful about. And there we are, and we're in Psalm 3, and amidst all of those things, what is David doing? He's sleeping like a baby. Did you hear it in Psalm 3? I lie down and sleep. I wake again, for the Lord 
sustains me. In the midst of Shimei having thrown rocks and kicked up dust and reminding him of his past, in the midst of what Absalom is soon going to do, which is try to come after him and kill him, where do we find David? He is sleeping and able to sleep well. It reminds me a little bit of one of my favorite stories of Jesus that you probably know. In the Gospel of Mark, there's Jesus and he's in the boat in the middle of this great storm in the Sea of Galilee, right? And, and the disciples are losing their minds. The water's coming up, you know, it may swamp them. And they're thinking, oh my goodness, this is it. And how does Mark describe what Jesus is doing? Mark says, and there's Jesus and he's sleeping in the stern on a cushion. <laughs> Isn't that great? I just imagine he's got a little blankie, you know, it's kind of up over the shoulder and he is just having the time of his life. He's just snoozing away while the storm all around him is raging and there he is. So finally the disciples, you remember, they lose their minds. They're like, no, they're like, Jesus, wake up. We're all gonna perish. And the way that they describe it, it's almost like Jesus is like, Wow, what time is it? That was amazing, right? He's just kind of stretching, you know? I mean, he's like, whoa. Jesus and David, there they are, just sleeping beautifully in the midst of all the storm going on around them. And I don't think it's because they're just simply oblivious. I don't think it's because they don't have emotions. I don't think it's because they don't see these things. No, I think it's simply because of the fact that they are able to have a remarkable peace in the midst of the past and the future which bids them to anxiety and fear. I like what James Lindbergh says. He says, this psalm encourages one to sleep, trusting that the Lord can run things on the planet for a few hours without our help. <laughs> How many of us have spent hours up in the middle of the night more than happy to tell God what he needs to be doing? So how do we reach this place where David is? How do we reach this place of peace? Well, let's be clear. I don't think that Psalm 3 is like, a, hey, three easy steps to sleeping well tonight. I don't think that that's what this psalm is. But I do think there's something that we can learn from David as we watch him. One of the things that we can learn, how is he able to have this peace? One of the ways in which we see him doing this is by, if we just kind of look at this whole thing all together, this is David yet having one more conversation with God. Remember, we said this from the very beginning uh, when we started looking at the life of David. We said, David is a man after God's own heart, not because he's perfect or flawless. No, we, we've seen all those things now. We, we know that that's not the case. It is the fact that he is always dealing with God. David is always talking to God, right? And this isn't just in those difficult times or in these fearful times. You see, I, I, I would suggest that if you wait until then... And I still think you should certainly go to him, but you're, it is much more difficult to have peace if you haven't developed that relationship over the years. Remember, David is there. He's in the pasture, right? And he's in the pasture when he's just a shepherd in a very ordinary day. And 98% of our days are just very ordinary, but he's still talking to God then. He's still listening to God. He's engaging in this relationship, right? So that he's built up this foundation, right? It's, it's a bit like if you just try to go run a marathon, you know, a very challenging, and painful thing, you can, almost all of you, I'm convinced of this, almost all of you could just go out and walk 26.2 miles. Who thinks that they cannot? Bobby, you can do it. But I can tell you it's not gonna be pretty. 
and it's going to be incredibly painful. But if you begin to slowly work your way up, it might still be somewhat painful, but the odds of you being able to do it with much less pain is much less. Why? Because you've, you've built up that muscle over time. You've, you've built up your mind over the time. It's the same thing with Jesus. We, it's that daily interaction that allows us then to get to the point when the Shimei is screaming at us or when we're fearful for the future. We know that this relationship with God is so deep that we've developed this trust that we can continue to sleep, to be at peace amidst all of the storms. It's also, though, interesting to see, uh, Tim Keller points this out uh, in verse 3, that David says that God is his glory, that God is his glory, right? Uh, which, which seems to be saying that for a while there, there's a good chance that God was not his glory. And by that, what we mean is his significance, his, his meaning, his security, uh, we talked about this with David and Bathsheba, that, that clearly probably all of a sudden his glory has, had been his power, right? Had been the fact that he was king, all these different things, that God was no longer his glory anymore. And what Keller says is, as long as anything, and it can be a good thing, right? I mean, it can be, you know, parenting. It can be being a spouse. It can be being, you know, a good employee or getting work. We get significance from those things, and that is good and right, but if they are our ultimate significance, if those things are our glory, we will always be anxious. Why? Because those things can always be taken away from us. And we know that deep down inside, which means we will always have a bit of unsettledness as long as the fact that those things hold what is our deepest glory. And so in many ways, these struggles that we have can be a gift if we allow them to be because they force us to say, oh, that's right. Where is my glory found? Where is my glory? glory. One last thing I want to say is that it's interesting that in this David passage or in this passage in Psalm 3, he ends with a blessing for the people of God. That's interesting, isn't it? Amongst all the fear and anxiety that he, that, that could, that he could have, amongst everything else going on, he has the space, the energy to be able to say, God, I pray that you would bless your people. When we were talking about David and Goliath a uh, couple months ago now, we, we said that what made David unique was not that he didn't see Goliath, right? Goliath was nine feet tall. Everyone could see Goliath. Everyone could see that fear. What made David unique is that that was not all that he saw, right? Fear tends to cause us, our vision, to, to, to get smaller and smaller until that's all we can see, which means, of course, Goliath is even bigger than he really looks because it's just all that we can see. But David, because he'd spent all that time developing a godlike vision, he saw, he saw Goliath, but he knew there was so much more. When we, when we suffer from anxiety or fear or when we are so broken from the past that we can't imagine that God could in any way forgive us, then all of a sudden our vision becomes so small that we can't think of anybody else. So there's this great demonstration of this reality that when we are filled by anxiety, we will become actually more and more self-centered. And David here makes this clear demonstration that even though he has a past. And even though his future is anything but certain, he's still able to pray and to give blessings to others. Now, I want to say one last thing, which is the hard part is that when you're dealing with anxiety or fear, you can hear all these things. And it's really hard to actually use any of them. 
Because when we begin to get focused on the past, when we begin to kind of get fretful about the future, quite frankly, our minds begin to spool up and it's all that we can think about. It's the reason why we can't just lay our head down on our pillow and go to sleep, right? Because we just keep thinking about these things and we just keep going and going and the little narrative just keeps going again and again in our mind and it just gets faster and faster and faster. And that's why I wanna point out one word to you. It's a word that many of you already have heard. It was actually in the, in the uh, scripture. I didn't say it. It's a word that's in the Psalms. I think it is 70 times, but it's in Psalm 3, three times. That's that word selah, S-E-L-A-H. Now, generations of scholars have tried to figure out what selah means. Some think it's a musical notation. Others think it's a call to reflection, a call to pause. The answer is this. Nobody knows. But what I have discovered actually is of all the questions, there's probably the most asked question, at least within the top three or four, that I get is this question. What does Selah mean? People are continually asking that question because they see it in the Psalm and they're like, well, what does it mean, right? What is it supposed to mean? Which tells me something, that even though we have absolutely no idea what it means, do you know what it ends up doing for us today? It causes us to pause and to reflect and to wonder. So for whatever it may have meant thousands of years ago, it means, it seems to me, stop and pause and wonder. And as I thought about that, I was reminded of Andy Crouch's book, TechWise Family, that I mentioned several months ago. I read it about a year ago. And he has a particular section where he talks about sleep and not having your phone too near to you and all those things. I'm not gonna talk about that per se, but here's what he does say. He says this, when you wake up in the morning, the first thing you should do is not to pick up your phone And to say, who's texted me? Who's emailed me? What's going on with the news? What's happening? What have I missed? To not make that the very first thing that you do. Up until that time, that was the first thing that I tended to do. As soon as I woke up, I thought, well, I don't know if God was able to keep up with things overnight. Let me check, see how he's done. (laughs) But over this last year, I have not done that. It was hard in the beginning. It was super hard. In fact, I talked to somebody earlier today and they said, I'm gonna put a post-it note on my phone every night. But it's to take, I would just say, 10 minutes. And rather than looking at that phone, just stay in silence. Get out of bed because you may go back to sleep. But 10 minutes to remember your glory. 10 minutes to remember your importance, why you are significant, to remember who God is and who you are not, which is not God. To simply take 10 minutes to know that you are not defined by whatever that phone says or whatever the television says. You're not defined by the past. You're not defined by whatever frightful future there might be out there. Instead, we are defined by the Prince of Peace. And to create that space to simply breathe in, because it does, I have found, it begins to shape one's day differently. It doesn't mean that nothing bad ever happens that day by no means. It doesn't mean that Shimei doesn't pop up his head someplace and say, hey, remember this? But it does mean that when you've begun by framing it in such a way to say, no, 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 I remember that my glory is in God. Then no matter what armies may surround you, no matter what waves may engulf you, no matter what the past, how it might overwhelm you or the future and the ways it might overcome you, what we begin to understand is that the deliverer will never leave us alone. May we remember that as we lay our heads down tonight, 
May we remember where our glory lies. That we, in the midst of the storm, might be a people of peace. Amen? Let's pray.